0: Coming up today on The Courier Daily. Instagram has kind of become the communication platform where a lot of this advertising and marketing of these kind of improvised businesses takes place, also email newsletters. And it's this really fascinating improvised economy that no one is going to shift into that line of business permanently. But during this period, it's, it's really inspiring. And, you know, as someone who also needs to eat and wants to continue to eat well... It's a really great resource.
1: My basic problem with these kind of Insta pivots are that it sort of undermines the progress that you have made up until that point, establishing who you are, what you do, what your message is. And if you suddenly say, okay, I'm not a fishmonger, I'm a children's entertainer. It's like, "What? what are you talking about? I didn't know you did that.
2: I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 17th of April. And this is The Daily Podcast from Courier. We're checking in with small business owners and experts all over the world to find out clever ways they're adapting and growing. And today we're sort of dissecting all of that adapting and pivoting and growing to ask, what's next? There's been some awesome improvisation from small businesses, out of necessity, of course. But will that same spirit of hustling and creativity survive once the world inevitably reopens? Well, back on the show is Dan Frommer. He's on the line from Brooklyn, and he's the founder of The New Consumer, an excellent email newsletter about how and why people spend their time and money. And, you know, Dan, on this podcast, and in Courier Weekly, our email newsletter, we're obsessed with stories of how small businesses are adapting. Obviously, you're seeing this all over, too. I mean, how do you reckon that spirit will manifest itself after the crisis ends, will it still be there? Will it change these businesses forever, you think?
0: I'll give you a couple examples from New York this week alone. It's hard, you know, you go for a short walk outside and you see a lot of your favorite places have closed and may not reopen, and that's really hard. What is heartening and inspiring is to see improvisation and creativity and These people who look like, especially food and and restaurants, they're they're as much art as they are business, you know, probably for many of them more art than business, you know, and you can really get a sense now of who are the people who really want to be doing this and who are the people who, given the opportunity, have just kind of closed up and, and gone away. And, you know, and no judgment to them. Maybe they have a reason to do that. But, you know, I'll take you to yesterday in Brooklyn where our local neighborhood bougie rotisserie chicken place, The Fly has closed for business. But what they're doing once a week is they've set up a, a Shopify site where from noon Monday to noon Tuesday, they take orders and you can buy their pre-marinated spice rub chicken to roast on your own at home. You can buy a farmer's box of fresh produce, which we bought yesterday, that comes with a dozen farm fresh eggs. You can buy their sauces, their hot sauce. You can buy wine off their wine list at retail prices, marinated olives, just delicious stuff. The website takes orders for 24 hours. And then on Wednesday, you come between 11 and four and they've opened up their kind of French doors that are part of their dining room. There's a table blocking the door. You walk up with your mask on they are standing kind of six feet back in the restaurant. You tell them your name. Then you got to go back and wait on the sidewalk. They bring you your box. <laughs> you know, it's already prepaid. There's no contact. Everyone's wearing masks and gloves. Then they step back. You take your box and you walk home. And it is super weird, but it works. And, you know, here we have this beautiful box of, of fresh vegetables from a farm. We have an amazing chicken to roast. We have Delicious Olives. We have, you know, Pet Nat from Puglia that we're going to drink this weekend. You know, and this restaurant is part of a small group here, and they've had to lay off a lot of their staff. You know, and one of the skews on their Shopify site is, you know, tip our staff, basically. And they have a GoFundMe like everyone else does. Some of them get to keep working. They get to keep the chicken orders going, maybe a smaller order than before. They get to keep some of their cooks and staff employed, at least partially during this time. And their community gets amazing food. And so that's just one example of, you know, I, I see this Instagram has kind of become the communication platform where a lot of this advertising and marketing of these kind of improvised businesses takes place, also email newsletters. And it's this really fascinating improvised economy that no one is going to shift into that line of business permanently but during this period it's it's really inspiring and you know as someone who also needs to eat and wants to continue to eat well it's a really great resource so it's been really great to see that
2: what do you think about the difference between adapting and improvising like that restaurant you're talking about is doing just out of necessity And, you know, pivots, which we've been covering in Curry Weekly at times, you know, doing a 180. So for instance, in today's edition of Curry Weekly, we've briefly featured this fashion rental company that's now doing food delivery in 48 hours. So you get fresh food and veg sent to your house. has nothing to do with fashion whatsoever. Do you think it'll be hard to turn off that? faucet of, uh, you know, turn off that business model and go back to the original one? Do you think a lot of these companies might say, hey, I'm actually pretty good at selling fruit and veg. Forget about the fashion.
0: I think all bets are, are off or on whatever you want to say. Like, I think that a lot of people right now are kind of facing the reality that while their previous business wasn't really working that well anyway, so might as well just try what we can do. And and there are, you know, many pivots in business that have created billion-dollar companies, right, like Slack and Twitter. And, you know, we love to hear those stories. And then you see also some apparel companies becoming masks and protective equipment companies. Some of that is just so that they can be considered essential businesses and keep moving. But we now have masks from three or four different companies that were not making masks a couple of months ago and now have made us some really wonderful masks, including, you know, a uh, kitchen apron company called Headley & Bennett in Los Angeles, including Dove Charney's Los Angeles Apparel, you know, the founder of American Apparel. You can't go out and just buy surgical masks yet. They're still not in stock. So it's really been actually very useful to have these functional semi-functional masks from these apparel companies
2: we've seen a backlash actually against some small businesses that have started selling masks for you know for a small profit i mean you know they are businesses after all but a lot of consumers are saying well you shouldn't be selling masks and making money you know you should be sending them all for free to the nhs or to workers who need them where do you fall on that argument should people be selling them or selling them really cheaply or is there are they justified in trying to do well by also doing good
0: I don't think anyone should ask anyone else to go out of business or to put themselves in financial peril. That's certainly not responsible. I love the models I've seen where by purchasing some, you're also funding the donation of some others. So I'm pretty sure at least two out of the three companies that we've ordered masks from, or even maybe all three, by purchasing them at retail, we've also essentially covered the cost for them to donate a set to medical workers. And I don't know how incredibly useful these masks are for them. Certainly, maybe for some people who work in hospitals, I think, obviously, doctors probably still need real masks. And we'll see if there's a, a stockpile uh, you know, of unwanted masks at some point. But for now, I think as quickly as they've spun up and been able to to offer those things, I love it. And I also love people, you know, anyone with like a spare 3D printer is making these face shields and donating those. Or even Apple has made, you know, a very Apple-like face shield that includes, you know, the best instruction manual for a, for a snap together face shield that you could even ask for. So.
2: I mean, New Balance made really cool looking masks that they. I
0: want one. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I want one too. I don't think they're selling them for consumers. I think they're just sending them to health workers.
0: I guess like going forward, that is a question like, Are we going to be buying masks for the next couple of years? And if so, you know, what is the iPhone of masks? Is that going to be a, you know, not even just a joke business, but like a real accessory line for a lot of these companies? I think it very well could be, at least for the next couple of years.
2: Perhaps finally, I mean, all of this improvisation that is going on. What long-lasting effects do you reckon that will have on those businesses? Do you think they'll keep that within the DNA of the company post-crisis, this kind of hustling?
0: Of course, it depends on the business and the industry. I think that the regulations, like, you know, are are restaurants going to be required to keep tables, you know, two meters away from each other? Will that allow the type of throughput that they need to sustain a meaningful business I think that's all stuff that we don't know the answers to and I also think that a lot of the, especially in the food business like I think they'd rather get back to making the food that they love making and not packaging up farm kits to go
2: Sure, but I guess I mean the spirit of like, you know, American giant. We sell the world's best hoodie, but now we've completely pivoted our factories to making masks. Do you think that what they learned by pivoting so quickly might make them more nimble in their day to day business?
0: I hope so. I hope that spirit stays there. And I think the most obvious binary answer is like they will get to continue to exist, unlike those who were too rigid and simply went out of business. I think another thing to highlight is a lot of these companies are shifting to digital products and that could be a bigger long-term strategy. I think of Sky Ting Yoga here in, in New York, which is you know one of our favorite yoga studios. And they certainly couldn't have planned it this way, but they had just launched a digital product you know, within months ago, Sky Ting TV, which is essentially very, very high quality studio production yoga lessons available on any web browser for $20 a month. You know, and they've been promoting it with live streams every day, and they've even sold some sponsorships for that. And I don't know how fast people are going to be excited to run back into a yoga studio where you're three feet away from someone who's sweating and panting and coughing. Whereas I think a lot of people who've now purchased a yoga mat for their house and maybe some blocks and some lightweight free weights are going to continue to use these at home products, you know, and, and if you think of this on a bigger scale, Peloton too, they're probably crushing it right now. My guess is that, you know, at least for the next couple of years, I mean, I don't know about you, I'm not interested in going into a gym for a while. So, you know, you look, for, look at a company like uh, Equinox, like that might be a really tough sell for a lot of people. In the case of Sky Ting Yoga, which is a small business, Certainly, uh, the revenue from this time is helping them stay afloat. Hopefully, they will stay afloat. My guess is that that will be a bigger part of their business going forward than they even probably imagine it would be, and I think that's great.
2: Thanks, Dan. Dan from there, and check out Dan's newsletter, The New Consumer, and subscribe at newconsumer.com. And to pick up on that, I'm on the line now with Fleur Emery. She's a Courier columnist, startup expert, content creator, and former food industry entrepreneur. And, you know, Flora, I know you, you talk with tons of entrepreneurs every week. You probably hear some ideas of people surviving, pivoting, adapting, and trying to grow all the time. Are there some ill-conceived ideas that you hear?
1: I think there's just lots of rushed ideas at the moment. There's a sense that some people are able to sort of take this strange set of circumstances and capitalise on it for whatever reason. So say for example, a woman I was interviewing this week who has a, a gifting mail delivery and she's been able to work. She can keep her warehouse open in these circumstances. And you know, she her stuff can't get out the door fast enough. And so we see businesses like that and we just think, oh my God, you know, how can I make the most of the situation? How or how can I sort of prevent losing my business? And people are rushed. And you know, there's the classic things of um changing things to mail order trying to put services online if you can't make the thing that you make you can talk about making the thing you make you can teach the thing you make all of those kind of things which is a bit of a sort of a, a sticking plaster and there's a bit of a of a scramble there's a lot of discounting which isn't a great idea necessarily because of course when you lose your customers in a pandemic it's not the price that is stopping them buying something. It's the pandemic.
2: Yeah, what do you make of that kind of flirt? Everybody's saying, you know, all of a sudden I'm going to do my services for free and give away products for free or heavily, heavily discounted. Do you think ever doing that in the short term is a good strategy ever?
1: Oh, I can understand why it's tempting. Like, obviously it's the first thing we reach for, but it doesn't work for a start. You know, we, we can see that. And it's based on an assumption that the customer is not buying your service because they haven't got the money to pay for it and in fact of course down at my level with freelancers and founders of small businesses yes, our money tap has been turned off but for the rest of the world you know who are on salary who are on siloed they're at home with their family playing playstation and on the computer and they've got the same income there's always lots of money swilling around and you know there are lots of potential customers so even in fact instead of discounting i'd be thinking about who is my customer you know Know, how can I you know find a second tier of customers how can I reach them but my kind of main message when people come to me is to encourage them to like take some time to actually assess the viability of their business under these conditions and actually when I push back with that question some of them don't know how much money they need for their business to survive each month they just don't have access to those basic numbers or they'll say oh I have to ask my accountant it's just like take the reins of your own, you know, business, drive your own car, stay calm. You just need a back of an envelope and a pen and you can work out those numbers, right? How much money have we been making? How much money do do we think we'll make for the next two months and how much money do we need? And often with the kind of businesses I work with, you know, if you take out a founder's salary or the the owner's salary out of the equation, You know, the business has very low operating costs anyway. And I think that we're all triggered into this sort of sense of anxiety and going down the path of thinking, oh, what help can I get? What help can my business get? But actually, if you can support yourself financially for two or three months, if you've got padding to stay afloat for that amount of time, you just stop drawing out of your own business some of them can survive without needing to do some huge dramatic pivot. My basic problem with these kind of insta pivots are that it sort of undermines the progress that you have made up until that point, establishing who you are, what you do, what your message is, you know, that is all your intellectual property, like all the goodwill and all the kind of customer relationships around that, you know, that's really gold. And if you suddenly say, okay, like I'm not a fishmonger, I'm a children's entertainer it's like what what are you talking about i didn't know you did that it's confusing and it doesn't make much sense and sometimes it's just maybe it's time to just put the business into a coma for a bit and wake it up you know when it's all over
2: and finally it's friday so once again i've invited back couriers duncan griffiths and john sunyer to peel back the layers of today's edition of our newsletter, Curry Weekly, which hits in boxes this morning. And Duncan, we kicked off the newsletter this week with a story from Thailand about how a a beer company pivoted from B2B to B2C. Can you explain more?
3: So obviously a lot of alcohol brands are kind of pivoting from wholesale to D2C. This particular company had a very big following on Facebook. And I think on the day, actually, that the Thai government ordered all the hospitality businesses to close they kind of quickly changed the whole business structure to field orders via Facebook Messenger. Since then, they've been kind of fulfilling deliveries same day, responding on Messenger and using their own staff and kind of courier services to get those
2: beers out to the people who need them. So they're using yeah facebook messenger plot twist though is that bangkok has now banned all alcohol sales for 11 days so i guess it's a they have to pivot after the pivot that is quite a big plot twist so i guess they're gonna have to figure out what to do now but yeah i mean that's another roadblock
3: yeah exactly i think they're kind of waiting apparently it's going to be 11 day ban so after that hopefully they'll be able to pick up again i think what's interesting here is um obviously advertising alcohol on facebook is illegal in thailand I and mean, you can't display alcohol in adverts. So they're kind of promoting the delivery service rather than the bees itself. And it's very much trial and error to see how much budget they put towards targeting of people and advertising because they don't know how it's going to work. They to basically triple
2: their sales at the moment to even survive. So it's very much waiting to see how it goes. John, tell us a bit about the piece that you worked on this week about Sportsbanger, the um, clothing brand. And for those listening, I mean, you might have seen one of their T-shirts with the NHS logo and the Nike logo underneath it.
4: Sports Banger is run by a guy called Johnny Banger. He has his studio and shop in Tottenham, and he's been running this kind of bootleg fashion company for about six years now. And he kind of like mashes up different logos with with each other, you know, flips the Reebok logo on its head. But one design's particularly taking off right now. And as you said, it's the one with the NHS logo and the Nike tick underneath.
3: Yeah, actually, one of my biggest regrets is, because I've kind of been aware of his brand for like, maybe almost 10 years now. And my friend used to always wear sports banger jumper like every day. And actually, one of my biggest regrets is a bit strong. One of my regrets <laughs> is I never, I never got hold of one of those jumpers. And also he made, a, he made a free Talisa t-shirt as well. I don't know if anyone gets that reference. The, um, N- yeah,
4: that, that, that was pretty much his first t-shirt. There used to be this really terrible band, Danny, called N-Dubs. Well, subjective, subjective. They probably didn't make it over to America.
2: No, they have, they did, they did. But what's the hook, John? What, what makes it so interesting in this day and age?
4: So basically, last Friday night, he started reselling these NHS Nike t-shirts. And in half an hour, he made 37,000 pounds. What's interesting about that, it's a one-man operation, pretty much. He spent zero on marketing. Everything he does runs pretty much directly counter to what every other kind of street brand out there does. So it's just really interesting kind of like thinking about his business model and why he achieves so much success.
2: Yeah, sometimes when you go completely out of the box, like there's this company in New York called Mischief and they drop the weirdest products in the world and they somehow are making money and they got venture capital money or something, but like nobody could really crack what actually they do, but that's the genius of it. So maybe there's something to be said there.
3: He also um, puts on raves. So... As I when they're back in action. Have you been to one? I've never been, but I've always wanted to. And I feel like this is going to spare me on next, next when Raves are kicking off again.
4: You're a real fanboy, Duncan. I'm
2: a, I'm a bit of a fanboy. And you know, John, one of the funny things about Sports Banger, or maybe unlikely things, is that it's entirely illegal, right? I mean, what he's doing is not really above board.
4: Yeah, that's completely right. He's a bootlegger. He's a brand hacker. And in the short time the brand's been alive, he's received something like five warnings from the UK government. He's had two online shops and three PayPal accounts shut down. Yeah, he definitely does things his own way. Also in
2: the Curry Weekly this week, guys, we caught up with Amy Gallo. She is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. She's a podcaster. She's written a book, The Harvard Business Review Guide to Dealing with Conflict. And Duncan, what did she tell you about how, you know, how to deal with tensions between coworkers?
3: Yeah, I think actually intuitive is definitely the word because a lot of what she was saying was like it was kind of common sense but also things that you might very easily forget now that you're not seeing someone day to day and you can't really interpret their kind of body language or the way they kind of say things so really important stuff i think as well lots of lessons that kind of go into workplaces as well in terms of giving the benefit of the doubt to the person you're speaking to or the person you're managing and i think one of the key things she, she said was basically putting yourself in their shoes which is something i think often people forget john what what do you think
4: yeah she basically said it's a good thing to argue with your coworkers. so um bring it on guys let's continue <laughs>
2: My special thanks to Dan Frommer, Fleur Emery, and couriers John Sunyer and Duncan Griffiths for today's show. If you did like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. And of course, send me any business questions you might want answered, and we'll try to feature it on an upcoming show. Just record your question in audio format and email it to me at daniel at couriermedia.co. Sign up to Courier Weekly, our email newsletter. For more stories of pivoting and adapting, that's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. We're back again tomorrow.